part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today on the program, we're talking about last week in Southern Labor. We have uh, Professor Cohen, an expert on school choice, to debunk some of the right-wing talking points around the subject we are responding to the council of bosses response to the auto workers in alabama organizing their unions and we play a clip where sean fain explains why charlie kirk shouldn't be afraid of black pilots all that and more on today's program if you've got uh if you want to be part of the program We've got a phone number, and we're going to go ahead and open those phone lines, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail if you'd like to leave us a message throughout the week, and we might play it on the next show. Uh, Just a reminder before we get started, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio or... If you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. Uh, We are on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, all at The Valley Labor Report. We also have a website, tvlr.fm, where you can subscribe to our newsletters, Last Week in Southern Labor and Boss Watch. Get those in your inbox every single week. Uh, Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So make a one-time or recurring monthly donation at tvlr.fm slash donate. Also, uh, if you... um, uh, you can buy our hat at TVLR. Uh, you can buy our new merch. We don't have a hat, but we will be putting our hat up for uh, pre-order here soon. We're going to be doing another round of that real soon. Uh, TVLR.fm slash store to buy our merch. Patreon.com slash The Valley Labor Report to become a patron. And if you're a member of a union, then please do think about getting your local to sponsor the show. We could not do it without the support of organized labor. Let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you are on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check that out. And as most of you know, we are not media professionals, just some diehard union brothers who believe that Alabama and the South's labor movement and working class deserve a bigger platform. We are hoping this project can make a difference on that front, and we could not do it without you. So we want to thank everyone for tuning in. Whether you're a loyal fan or a first-time listener, we appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. 
Absolutely. Uh, we do have an interview that we're going to be playing with Dr. Cornell West, an independent candidate for president in the United States and a longtime uh, activist and champion for workers' rights, uh, um, civil and uh, economic rights. Um, for decades now, Adam was able to do that interview in person down in Birmingham. Uh, we're going to be playing that interview in overtime. Uh, that's the second half of the program uh, where we are online only. So if you're listening to us on the radio and you want to make sure that you hear that interview, find us on Facebook and YouTube at The Valley Labor Report and continue listening to the show after we go off of the air at 11 a.m. Uh, appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, this morning uh, in YouTube, we got a bunch of folks already. Uh, Infinite Content says, y'all got Dr. West. I'm so here for this. Yes, I and I actually haven't listened to you. I don't know, Adam. I, I don't think that, that I told you. I meant to listen to the interview, but I haven't yet. So you're going to be getting my live reaction as well. Uh, Dylan says, hello from York, Pennsylvania. Enjoy the show. Just started listening this week. Great job. Thank you for listening. Uh, appreciate you uh, tuning in. Strom says, yeah, Leanne, good morning. Love you guys. Thank you. Ronan, hey, y'all, solidarity forever. Ronnie, good morning. Ready for this show. Tempest Lord Rayhan, hey, howdy, hey. Solidarity from Houston, IWW. Tobias Grove, justice for all. Juliet, uh, good morning. Adam, uh, you may know her. So there you go. Appreciate everybody going ahead and tuning in. Uh, Brandon, good morning, fellow workers. We're going to go ahead and get right to last week in Southern Labor. Lots of updates. So here is what workers in the U.S. South and the American colonies were up to from January 28th to February the 2nd. In new campaigns, two workers at Jupiter Aluminum in Wellsburg, West Virginia, filed a petition to hold a union election with the United Steelworkers, USW. One worker at Transdev Services in Mobile, Alabama, filed a petition to hold a union election with the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU, Local 770. 18 workers at Starbucks in Miami, Florida, filed a petition to hold a union election with Starbucks Workers United. The employer filed a petition to hold a union election after a majority of the two workers at Vestas Services in Stafford, Texas, demonstrated support for unionization with Teamsters Local 988. The drivers are seeking to be added to a unit of sales representatives already represented by the Teamsters. The employer filed a petition to hold a union election after a majority of the 10 workers at Heinz GS Properties in Washington, D.C. demonstrated support for unionization with the International Union of Operating Engineers, IUOE Local 99. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers International Union, BCTGM Local 218, as the union representing 16 workers at ADM Milling in Carthage, Missouri. 22 workers at Vision Works in Lexington, Kentucky, filed a petition to hold a union election with the Teamsters Local 651. 50 guards at Allied Universal in Tampa, Florida, filed a petition to hold a union election with the Security, Police, and Fire Professionals of America, SPFPA. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify the International Association of Aerospace Workers, uh... A IAMAW Local Lodge 1745 as the union representing the 18 workers at Rail Crew Express in Thayer, Missouri. 600 workers at Westinghouse Electric Company in Hopkins, South Carolina filed a petition to hold a union election with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW. 
In campaign updates, after holding their first public forum a week or so ago, Hyundai workers in Montgomery, Alabama announced that they had hit 30% cards signed with the United Auto Workers, UAW, with an amazing video that we're going to be playing later in the program. Nationwide, the UAW announced that over 10,000 auto workers have signed cards. That is significant progress towards their goal of organizing 150,000 non-union auto workers. At an NLRB hearing last week, the board set an April 22nd date for a hearing before an administrative law judge to determine whether election, uh, objections by Amazon or RWDSU in the 2022 Bessemer Amazon Union election constitute an unfair labor practice nullifying the results. If the results are notified, that could potentially result in a third election at the Bessemer Amazon facility. In election results, 14 workers at Alabama Arise received voluntary recognition with the Communication Workers of America, CWA, Local 3908. Congratulations, Adam. The petition to hold a union election with the News Guild CWA's Media Guild of the West for 15 workers at San Antonio Report has been withdrawn, as has the petition to hold a union election with the Teamsters Local 886 for 14 workers at Graves Minimaker Foods Transportation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The petition to hold a union election with the Teamsters Local 728 for 46 workers at OAP Transportation in Forest Park, Georgia, has been withdrawn, as has the petition to hold a unit clarification election with the IBEW Local 222 for 950 workers at Luma Energy Serve Company in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 62 workers at Nestle USA in McDonough, Georgia, voted 31 to 27 against decertification of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, RWDSU Mid-South Council, meaning that the union will remain. This decertification petition was filed with help from the National Right to Work Foundation. 25 workers at Duke Riley Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina, voted 14 to 11 in favor of unionization with the IUOE Local 465. 25 workers at Platinum Waste Disposal in Ganaibo, Puerto Rico, voted 19 to 6 in favor of unionization with the Central General de Trabajadores, the General Workers Center. 24 workers at Ballet Austin voted unanimously with 100% turnout in favor of unionization with the American Guild of Musical Artists. 1,781 workers at Experts, a cleaning service in San Juan, Puerto Rico, voted 622 to 272 in favor of unionization with the Service Employees International Union, SEIU Local 1996. That's a huge win. In settlements, grievances, and unfair labor practices, AFGE won two years of back pay for 80 firefighters in Florida who were not being compensated for all hours worked. In strikes and bargaining updates, the Teamsters is calling for a strike of their 5,000 workers at Anheuser-Busch breweries across the country, uh, imminent and unavoidable. 
and unavoidable and demanded their last, best, and final offer. UE Local 150, which represents state and municipal workers in North Carolina, is threatening a sanitation strike in Durham if they don't get $25 an hour. Staying in Durham, the Durham Association of Educators staged a sick-out and shut down 11 schools and six more cafeterias to protest the clawbacks of proposed raises. And uh, additionally... In minor league football, there were some updates last week. Y'all will remember that with the merger of the USFL and the XFL into the UFL, the United Football League, the USFL players, uh, the USFL Players Union, with affiliated with the Steelworkers, now represents players that were formerly in the XFL as well. That's led to some controversy, including Al- famous Alabama alum, A.J. McCarron publicly blasting the union, saying that uh, since XFL players voted down the union in their election, they shouldn't have to be a part of it now. Um, So a lot more uh, uh, that (laughs) that situation continues to be controversial in politics and legislation. United Campus Workers CWA rallied and lobbied in the Virginia State Capitol to secure collective bargaining for university workers. Last week marked a year since East Pal- the East Palestine train derailment. Train accidents went up, not down, following the accident. Check out the Working People podcast for great coverage of this disaster, as well as the Real News Network. The Georgia Senate voted it to expand cash bail and criminalize charitable bail funds. Uh, it's free speech to donate to political campaigns, but it's not free speech to donate to people's bail. Insane. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, is pushing a bill that would give federal employees a 7.4% raise to help close the widening federal employee pay gap that has now reached 27%. The American Federation of of Teachers... The American Federation of Teachers, AFT, becomes the latest union to endorse a ceasefire in Gaza, meaning that unions representing about half of the labor movement have endorsed a ceasefire. It's also worth noting that Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, was reportedly the most vocally pro-Israel voice on the AFL International Executive Board call when the issue came up. So if she has moved on this issue, or at least has publicly moved on the issue, whatever she feels privately, it's clearly becoming the standard position among unions and the American public. The Council of Bosses in Alabama has announced an all-out war against the state's auto workers in their attempt to unionize with public admissions of close coordination between their organization and the state government to try to uh, hinder workers' rights to organize. Alabama bosses and politicians aren't the only ones declaring war on their constituents, with South Carolina Governor McMaster stating that he would fight unions, quote, to the gates of hell in his speech, in his state of the state speech last week. And we're going to be playing that in overtime, but I just want to say for the main show that he has one of those, like, evil Southern accents, right? You know, there, there are two different Southern accents. There's the one that's like, the normal working people Southern accent, and there's the evil one of the slave owners. Yeah, that's the one that he has. Just for the record, if you wanted to 
get a feeling for what he sounds like. In internal union affairs, the professional firefighters of Greensboro announced that 21 new firefighters from the most recent recruit class joined the union, bringing their membership total to over 600. Congratulations. Uh, so if we missed anything, let us know, tvlr.fm slash contact, and we'll make sure to include it on the next roundup. We're going to be right back talking to Professor Cohen about school choice. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. If you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Cure a call at 256-215-6769 for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Hewer at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit CoverAlabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. 
Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senior Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senior Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senior Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senior Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senior Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report, and uh, we've got some great stuff coming up today. Um, we do have a listener from South Carolina. Strom uh, says, I guess I sound evil. He does actually have that accent now that I think about it. Maybe it's more common in South Carolina. I don't know, but I have always associated that accent with, like, the elite, you know, the the people that would be a part of the machine at the University of Alabama. Um, people like, um, oh, what was that? Well, I for, one de- I, I for one denounce your accent okay. bashing. You're right. You're uh, right. I do not condone it. I am not a part of it. <laughs> what was his name? The guy that we interviewed running for governor, James, um, James something. He has that accent, too. I don't know. Maybe it's more common in South Carolina, but. Uh, but there's a there's a clear divide here on the Valley Labor Report. I have been denounced, so I'll take that into consideration. Uh, <laughs> I, I think you can do some continuing we'll do education. Some self, continuing education, self criticism. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, appreciate uh, appreciate the honest feedback. Uh, I'll take it into account. Uh, so today we have. Um, we've been been wanting to do this conversation for a long time, and it, it, it's it's long overdue. Uh, professor Joshua Cohen is a professor of Cowan. Cowan, gosh, Cowan! You did it again, Profe- buddy. <laughs> professor Cowan is a professor of uh, education policy at Michigan State University. Um, he was also the founding director and co-director of the Education Policy and uh, Innovation Collabor- Collaborative. Epic from 2016 to 2020, and uh, he's going to be talking to us about school choice, uh, school choice, quote unquote, school privatization um, is uh, what we refer to it as. And he comes to this issue from a very interesting perspective, which is that he used to be a proponent. He used to think that this would be what is going to actually be beneficial for students. And so he studied it, right? Like he actually looked at the results and he said, you know what? I actually... Uh, it doesn't seem to be the case that it's beneficial. So uh, really excited to talk to Professor Cowan. Uh, thank you for taking the time this morning. Yeah, happy to be here, guys. So 
talk to us about your background and and you know believing for for a time that school choice you know the the reform movement was really the school reform education reform movement was really um going to be the thing that improves education uh, uh for students in this country yeah so a little bit of background the the education reform movement has always been primarily based in and driven um, by uh, folks who are focusing on improving schools in large urban environments. And a lot of the the sort of so-called education reform uh, policies and plans to come out of those environments have been based on something called the market approach to education, meaning that we should treat education like a um, you know, like any other sort of market type uh, uh, set of problems, uh, whether it's dealing with teachers and teacher improvement, whether it's dealing with supply of, of certain products. In this case, if you think about education in a product, then, then schools are the firms delivering that product. And uh, the idea there was competition is really, really important in a ca capitalist uh, uh, driven market. And so what we need to do is create situations where schools compete with each other for scarce resources. Um, and and there, that will sort of the phrase goes, rising tide will lift all boats, every school will improve. Mm. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of problems with a lot of those different approaches, and some have been more successful, frankly, than others. But the specific problem of, of how to improve schools through this general bag of 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 tools called school choice. There's a lot of different types of school choice policy, but the specific one that you raised, the one that we're talking about today is, is using tax dollars to uh, send children to or to pay for kids in private school will in the long run create competition between public and private schools, thus benefiting everybody. That's the idea behind these things. Mm -hmm. And about 20 years ago, uh, 25 really, uh, these policies started to get trotted out uh, in environments, mostly around my neck of the woods, Milwaukee, Cleveland, uh, Ohio, uh, Washington, D.C. 20 years ago. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that I was ever sort of you know strongly in favor of them, but early in my career, there was these were kind of a hot thing to try to study. And uh, and I did. And I was part of a number of teams looking at those. And um, as these school privatization efforts have grown from these kind of small pilot type programs in places like Milwaukee, Cleveland, even to Washington, D.C., to statewide programs like those that are being talked about uh, all over states today, particularly in the, in the South where you guys are, states like Louisiana, states like Tennessee, states like Arkansas, uh, we've seen some of the the um, most devastating academic results for kids we've ever seen anywhere in, in the education research record. On top of that, uh, these programs aren't even really offering choice. What they're really doing is um, about three quarters of users for these private schools um, getting taxpayer dollars. We're already in private school to begin with. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Right. And so the I, I want you to kind of lay out the results. Um, but if, if you could dive in a little bit more in, into the you know, the 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 case for it and and some of the some of the data 
that, that they marshal, when they marshal out data. The, the, the thing that I have found in Alabama is this has been a recurring topic. I think over the last two or three years, there's been a big push to try to do a, a, an expansive uh, kind of universal school choice in the state legislature. And the thing that I have found most uh, surprising is that here in Alabama, they just don't even bother with actually presenting anybody with data. I mean, there's data out there that, that you could kind of manipulate and, and say like, oh, doesn't this look good? But they just don't even bother to do that. And that's the, the been yeah. the most surprising thing to me as we've gone through two or three cycles of this. There are places, like you said, that have done this on a pretty big scale. And so we have results that we can look at. Why aren't they telling us the results? That's, well, that's because the results... Because the results are pretty terrible, and and again, twenty years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case, and there was still at that time strong belief on the other side of this question among the folks pushing these type of bills that the results would make things look really good. And so, what they did at the time was they wrote into legislation, they wrote into these bills, um, very very um, expansive uh, accountability uh, systems that were very similar to what public schools had to deal with. This was the era of no child left behind, where test scores were really important to public school accountability. And at the following that, taxpayer-funded private schools were also required to do the same thing. None of that's true anymore. And the reason is, uh, well, the public schools still have to test their kids. But what, what's going on here is um, the results have been horrific over the last decade. Again, some of the worst we've ever seen. And so rather than try to kind of mess with with that and and create new kind of, there are still some some effort to create some type of data that, ba ba that backs these things. But increasingly what's going on um, is that they just don't even bother to, uh, they say, you know, as long as parents are happy with, with these private schools, we don't, the taxpayers don't have to know what's going on inside them. Uh, mm -hmm. we'll just keep the accountability for the public schools where the vast majority of kids go. Uh, that's really what's going on today. Yeah. I was going to jump in real quick to say, that's what I'm seeing as well from the proponents of quote unquote school choice here in Alabama is they are relying on this market you know, this market yeah. ideology that you opened uh, the segment with that, you know, it's not so much about the results and whether or not, you know, academic scores are, are improving for, you know, these kids or that no. kids. Right, yeah. right. And so that's that's really, you know, an interesting shift. And I think, as you pointed to, the evidence isn't on their side, right? So if it's not on your side, you can't refer to it. Uh, and, and I think that market ideology is something that um, you know, both political parties have embraced to varying degrees over the, the past couple decades, and it's something that has been internalized by even those in education to a large degree. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just really wanted to to emphasize that. I think that is a huge piece of this, to the conception of public education as um, anything else, as a product to be sold on the capitalist marketplace, just like, you know, any widget or car or anything you can imagine. And it's important to understand that even on those terms, these voucher systems fail. Like that's mm -hmm. what I'm they, they even even in this this space that they 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 have not been able to perform well. And there's the main reason for that. And this is I really if, if you take nothing else from this conversation today, the most important thing to understand is that the vast majority of beneficiaries for the school privatization plans were already in private school to begin with. It's about mm. three quarters, okay? They're just, just in October, a few weeks ago, when most recent numbers came out in Arkansas, uh, which was the most recent state to, uh, in a long line to report these numbers, 95% uh, of children using the voucher system that just got passed in Arkansas 
had never been in an Arkansas public school. And those numbers wow. are similar all over the country when this happens. Wow. It's just the tiny number of kids who are able to transfer from public to private school. Those are the kids that that they're kind of staking all of this on. And you know, at the honest case, you some you asked me about the case for this at the beginning. The, the honest case for it is that um, there are some folks who are never going to send their children to public school, and they shouldn't have to pay private school tuition. Uh, but they're doing that right now. They they can afford private school tuition, so they're sending their kids to private school, and the taxpayer should now come in and pick up the dime. Like that's hmm. at the end of the day, that's the honest argument. We could debate that, right? I mean, we could have that debate. Um, but that's, that's not actually the debate these folks want to engage in. They want to make it about public school failure. They want to say mm -hmm. it's about opportunity and freedom and choice. Listen, I don't know, um, how many of your listeners are, are living in rural communities, but look around how many private schools are there, right? So if, right. if I tell you that, that three quarters or more of users of these programs have never been in a public school, were already paying tuition for private school before asking taxpayers to pick up the check, it, this is not going to benefit most most communities, and and they know that, and that's why mm. the plan here is um, push these bills through. Very little transparency, very little accountability. It's a playbook that's being followed in state after state after state. Right. It's uh, you know, I mean, uh, the the vast majority of this program is, is basically a handout to the affluent. But then, and and I have I've heard people actually say this to I actually just saw a video this morning in fact on Twitter there's this conservative radio host talking to a, an opponent of of the the school privatization schemes um, and they said something similar this this opponent of, of these programs and so the the conservative radio host said um, so what you're saying is those 20% don't matter can you talk to us about that 20% or in Arkansas, that 5%? What does this program do for them? Is it, it you know, uh, it, it maybe, you know, maybe what we have to do to, to help this 5% five, 5 is, is even lower than I had realized. But 5%, we have to throw millions of dollars to the wealthy to help this 5%. Is that what's, uh, is that what's happening? Yeah, no, those, those, those are the kids who are hurt worse by these programs than anyone else. So it's, it's what I've said in, in other spaces is that these voucher systems are the education equivalent of predatory lending. Okay. Hmm. What, what happens is that they promise that this is, like, nobody is saying that public schools don't have shortcomings and nobody is right. saying that there's substantial room for improvement in public school communities. Like that's, whole you know there's a lot of folks working every day to do that and so what these things what these voucher proponents what these voucher lobbyists come in is they come in with a set of nationally written talking points into each state it's usually the same and i've been talking to folks all over the country and i'm just overwhelmed sometimes by how they just blast talking points into alabama tennessee to arkansas uh usually written by some dc think tanks guys i know um and and what they're trying to do is prey on people's frustration and in some cases very understandable frustration with their experience in public school and say we're offering you an alternative uh, what they're not telling you is that overwhelmingly for the kids who manage to get in that alternative is far worse and they're not telling you how hard it is to get in in the first place what it, these voucher systems allow private schools you know, to discriminate at will and to even if it's not meeting, say, a legal form of discrimination, they're allowed to just reject any applicants they want. They're allowed to ask any child they want to leave at any given period of time. Um, 
And so part of this issue of, well, the overwhelmingly num a large number of beneficiaries that are in uh, private schools are the beneficiaries of these voucher systems. Part of the issue there is that they've already gotten in. And so what mm -hmm. happens is you'll see Governor Ivey, you'll see Governor Lee in Tennessee, you'll see Governor Sanders in Arkansas, they'll come out there and they'll say, my plan has, you know, X percent of, of kids in, in our state will be eligible. Well, that, there's a big difference between eligible and access, okay? Mm -hmm. And what they're not telling you is that just because the state is saying, we'll cut a check for your family, they're not telling you the second part, which is if you can get into private school. And even if your kid meets the academic requirements, there still may be no room at the end. And that's why that that number is so high for the current number of, of voucher users who are already in private school. Those are the kids who got in, uh, you know, managed to get through the door, managed to stay. And the state is is now coming in and offering to pick up the check. And that's just really what the, what's going on. Mm -hmm. And and so what have what about the academic results? What do those look yeah. like? Uh, so let's take Louisiana near, near nearby. I know you got some listeners in the New Orleans area. So Louisiana built its voucher system in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, and then over the last 10 years has scaled it up to a statewide program. Louisiana results for kids who transferred from public to private school in that state overwhelmingly got shuttled into because for for a period of time the state did require it doesn't any longer, but for, for a period of time it did require private schools that were going to take these taxpayer bailouts had to submit to some oversight as well. And so they got ranked on a report card. So overwhelmingly, the kids who moved from public to private school using the Louisiana vouchers went to DNF-rated private schools. And what we saw is that on average, their test scores dropped. The technical uh, number is, is four-tenths of a standard deviation. Four-tenths of a standard deviation is about twice what COVID-19 has done to test scores more recently. And it's nearly three times what Hurricane Katrina did to test scores in Louisiana uh, in 2005 for kids who stayed there and, 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 um, and who were affected by that storm. These are catastrophic academic results for kids who transfer. And the reason, again, gets back to this issue of those DNF schools. The schools that want these taxpayer bailouts, they're what I call subprime private schools, very similar to kind of predatory lenders in the mortgage, mortgage sector. They, they don't, they're financially distressed. Uh, they're not very good at what they do. So remember when I said that on their own terms, the market uh, approach has showed that these systems fail? That's why. So under normal circumstances, these schools would go under. And what they're doing is coming in and they're taking these taxpayer dollars as a lifeline. Um, and the results for kids who transfer into them are, are, you know, that they show just how devastating and how bad these schools are at actually teaching children. The good schools, there are a lot of really great private schools out there. Um, overwhelmingly, they don't want anything to do with these things. And mm. uh, it's, I mean, think about it. Like, who's going to have room? Uh, if the state starts kind of coming in and picking up the tab and says, we're going to allow some kids to transfer from public to private school, it's the schools that already have room. Why do they have room? Why are they financially distressed? It's because they're not very good. The schools that have the waiting list, the schools that have the very high requirements that most kids can't get into, those schools are full. And mm. those are the ones that do, benef that do benefit down the line, by the way, when vouchers uh, scale up, like all these plans are asking them to do, then those users do get uh, get the tax break. 
But for the for the children that do transfer from public to private school, that's why the results are so terrible. It's it's I'm not overstating this. This is really on par with and, and in some cases in, in Louisiana exceeding uh, what COVID-19 did and what Hurricane Katrina did to test scores. Wow. I had no yeah. idea that I, I, I had not heard that information. My that is wild um because these are the people that the whole argument is is staked on right because because uh, obviously the affluent you know middle or upper middle class people who are already paying for private uh, school tuition you know they're not a very sympathetic kind of figure so they don't want to make the honest argument that you were talking about earlier where you know w we think that you know we upper class people think that the rest of you who are, you know, uh, statistically uh, <laughs> likely to have less money than I do, we think you should pay for my school, too. <laughs> In addition to the public school, you should pay for private school. That's not a very it's not a, an argument that's going to be easy to win. So they try to stake this virtuous position of I want to help, you know, poor and, and black students get out of failing public schools. But but you're saying that the data actually shows that people who take advantage of the voucher program who have not been in private schools, right. their academic results actually decrease by more than right. the decrease from COVID. Right. It's yeah. it's the the it's the education equivalent of predatory lending. That's exactly right. The kids who are already wow. in the elite the elite private schools, they are getting vouchers now. That's that's an important piece of this conversation that these universal voucher systems like like that are being proposed in each state, including your own, they are saying we're going to give money to these elite private schools too. But what they're not saying is that these elite private schools have to accept any new children. They're just simply saying we're going to underwrite uh, the tuition for the kids who are there. So where which schools still have space and which schools are, are able to accept more children coming from public to private school? It's these subprime providers. Often uh, uh, the, some of these schools are actually what I call pop-up schools. They come into the market once vouchers turn, uh, the voucher cash flow turns on, they open up. It turns out it's really hard to run a school. Not a lot of people are actually very good at it. And so they come in, uh, think about PPP during COVID, the the the, the small business um, uh, cash that was turned on during COVID. How many, I did, how many uh, uh, of you got a cousin or something who is just kind of like, I didn't know that guy had a business and all of a sudden he's got a right. business mm. and he's got, he got a $25,000 bailout uh, saying for his small business because he was going to just about start one and then COVID hit. I, I literally got a cousin who did that. Uh, that's what these schools do when vouchers come in. There's a number of these schools that come in. Again, they're not very good at it. So the types of schools uh, that kids attend when they, uh, when when voucher systems do come into the state are number one, these financially distressed subprime schools that are already existing that are barely hanging on. They'll take any kids that come in, and it's not because they're benevolent. It's because they need the money. Mm. The other group of schools are those sub are those pop up schools that flood the market. Uh, um, I spent a lot of time studying this issue in Wisconsin. Forty percent of schools, uh, private schools, taking voucher funds have closed since that program began in 1990. It's the oldest one in the country. Forty percent of schools have closed, even with the taxpayer bailout. And the average time to failure for the schools that did get that money that closed was less than four years. They made it four years. Now think about a kid coming in first grade, second grade, kindergarten, whatever. That means that that kids in that kid's entire academic life in elementary school they could enter that school and and the school could shut down before they even finished fifth grade that's why these results are so bad i think sometimes when mm. i talk to folks 
not necessarily you guys, but I talked to folks in other sectors and they're like, but this can't be true. How can these academic results be so bad? The reason is you got to get out of your head the idea that these elite private schools are opening their doors to kiddos once the voucher turns on. That's just not what happens. The schools that are taking the kids most in need, like lower income kids, the vulnerable kids are themselves poorly run operations, often that close. And that's why the results are so terrible. Mm. Right. So, I mean, I, I was just going to say that that's so true. I mean, there there's a misconception, yeah, that folks will be allowed into these elite academies when in reality you're going to be at Bubba's Bible School mm. at the strip mall that just popped up, right? And and has God knows who teaching, you know, classrooms if there's teaching even happening. You know, it's just really uh, it's it's shocking. Uh, and so one thing I really wanted to to ask you about is so we've talked about the folks, you know, this minority of folks who are, are going to potentially. Uh, benefit from this program, they think, only until they see the results. We know the majority of folks benefiting from the program are just getting a handout. Uh, but what about all of us folks that are left behind in the public mm. school system? How does this actually impact yeah. the, the public schools, you know, once these programs are intact? It's a good question. So it hap there's two things to, to, to take on here. So the first is, uh, how, how does this affect, say, the academic outcomes of the kids who stay? And the reason that's that's an important question to address is that this market theory behind uh, these improvements would also suggest that that academic outcomes will improve if uh, if you know there's competition. Right. And I will say that the, oddly enough, the evidence that um, that vouchers quote unquote work is better uh, for what happens to the kids who are left behind than it is for the kids who are actually used. In only in the sense that we see um, these very slight upticks sometimes in Florida's the case, Florida's where most of these results have been found, uh, we do see these slight upticks in test scores uh, as a result of what's called competitive threats. When a voucher system starts to underwrite uh, private schools in a, in a certain district's area, uh, sometimes sometimes those districts test scores improve for the kids who stay. That's only true, however. This is a very big exception, very big caveat. It's only true in districts that stand to lose the most money. So when you hear voucher, it's turns out defunding public schools is a really unpopular position. Left, right, most people don't want their public schools defunded in their communities. And so there's been a lot of effort made by the voucher lobbyist groups right now to say, no, 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 uh, these vouchers, they don't take money from public schools. And then they'll say in the same breath, but there are competitive effects that show public schools improve with academics. Um, and I will say they can't have it both ways. So what the data show is that it's only true that there are competitive effects in extremely vulnerable lower income communities that stand to lose the most dollars from voucher systems coming in. That's number one. Okay. Number two is over time. So the, 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 the dollars that get lost uh, when vouchers are, are, become law in any given state are the state portion of funding for local public schools. Remember when I said three quarters or more of users from these voucher systems were never in public school to begin with. So what that means is that most individual districts in your state, for example, they're not going to lose the money necessarily because they're losing tons and tons of children from their schools going to all these private schools in that area. We've already talked today about how that does not happen. 
what does happen is states can't afford to pay for two separate sectors of education. And so right now, uh, private individuals who can already afford private tuition on their own are paying their own tuition. And what the Governor Ivey's plan would do, what Governor Lee's plan, uh, North of you guys would do, what, what's going on in Arkansas, what's going on in Louisiana and elsewhere is simply saying, okay, we're going to come in as a taxpayer and pick up the tab for what's already being paid for on the private sector currently. The state can't afford to do that in the long run. And so the way it pays for it is by draining portions of state aid to local school districts. So that's where local school districts mm. start to lose the most amount of money is they and have to rely entirely on their own local revenue base. So that, depending on your political orientation, may sound like a good thing, but it turns out that if you go ask uh, both school district leaders, community leaders, mayors, city councils, uh, families who are paying attention to this stuff, they'll all tell you that the state portion of education funding is incredibly important to their districts. Be and, and the main reason is that the economy changes, it ebbs, it flows. Uh, uh, some dollars, some some years are lean years, some years are fat years. Districts can't have this fluctuating source of revenue. What the state portion does is it, it evens things out. It allows districts to plan. That all goes away when vouchers come to town. Hmm. Wow. Um, so uh, I, trying to be a devil's advocate, um, if uh, so, they I, I could imagine somebody saying, OK, so some of these schools close down after four years. Um, that's competition. And given enough time, maybe given 20 years or something, then you will actually then some of the elite schools will actually begin to to respond to the incentive to try to take more of these students in. They'll try to they'll try to expand or some of these other pop up schools will get better and become something like an elite school. Have we seen any of that happen in any of these oh. in, in any of these instances? No, the the only data that we have is a is tracked to these schools for about four years, and so anything past four years, we we don't know how the academic outcomes might be. Uh, but I will tell you though that that and and again, that's partly because states have just stopped tracking those for for these uh, larger mm. voucher systems. Any of the none of the voucher bills passed in the last two years nationally have included any type of oversight provisions that that would allow us to answer those long-term questions that you just asked. The wow. thing we do know, that just in terms of like the performance of the school and the kids going into them and that kind of thing, the thing we do know for sure though, is that it's over that same period of time that all of the um, bills come due at the state level. So what's what what's and this is probably going on. I haven't sort of followed the individual political debates going on in your legislature right now. But the the, the common trick is to create what's what's called a, a hold harmless type uh, approach to funding these voucher systems in the first couple of years. And they do that uh, because. Uh, political folks, politicians on either side of the aisle and legislatures don't like to vote on bills that will take dollars from their communities. And so to get enough votes, even among Republicans, what ends up happening is the state will carve out these these kind of, again, what are the article called whole harmless provisions. We're not going to defund local districts for a while. Uh, we're just going to pay for these voucher systems for the next three or four years out of other pieces of our general revenue fund. That only is is doable for three or four years. It's just like putting the the 
the charge onto a credit card, right? Like you can avoid paying for all of it at once. You can put a, you, you know a new big screen TV on an installment plan or whatever. But at some point, you got to pay, and usually right. it comes with interest. And that's what mm -hmm. happens here. So the long run question, the devil to that devil's advocate is okay. It, it's well, we do know that it's true that these elite private schools over time start to open more of their doors. But it's not, again, it's not that they're opening them to new kids. It's just that more and more of those children become eligible to take a voucher because over time, the the enrollment caps on participation go up and up and up and up. And eventually just to go like in Florida, go to anybody who wants a voucher, uh, even if you are already in private school paying uh, yourself for eight years. When that happens, that's when the state just begins to to not be able to afford to pay for both. And that's where spending on uh, local districts goes down, local communities goes down. Um, and and that's how the, that's when the check comes due. Mm. Wow. I don't have any other questions, Adam. Is there anything else that, that you wanted to ask? Him? Yeah, I, I guess my, my final question would be, do you have any parting words for people who are working in public education, who have kids in public education, people who believe in public education and want to see it uh, improved and defended, whether it's here in Alabama or elsewhere. Do you, you, know, you have any final words uh, for those of us who really want to win this fight? Yeah, I'd say just keep up the fight. Listen, every family has uh, things that they would like to make better for themselves in their house, the people that they love, the people that love them. We all have things that we want to work on. In the public schools, there are things that we need to keep working on. Uh, no one is saying that that these schools are perfect. Right. We're also yeah. not saying that the approach is to just uh, stop funding them, uh, destroy the whole the whole household, and uh, and move out and move in with some uh, uh, you know uh, uh, mistress who's gonna. Uh, offer us a, a good time for six months and then kick us out too. That's basically what what these bills are doing. So I would say, listen, uh, don't buy the the pitch from the out of state snake oil salesman. Um, I've heard it in every state right now. It's all the same. Uh, these are really well coordinated things. Um, the results are terrible. Uh, these are bills that are intended almost exclusively to benefit families who are already in private schools. Um, and what that's going to mean, though, too, by the way, is that it's still no matter if this bill passes in your state, it's still going to be true no matter what that the vast majority of children in Alabama are going to be learning in Alabama public schools. And so uh, all this all this bill will do is cut new checks and, and new tax breaks for families that are in Alabama private schools and leave the public schools to clean up the, the uh, you know, what's left with with less money over time. And oh, then the I, last thing I would say, go ahead. No, well, um, it, it, you can you can say that, and then and and wrap up with this. I I, I feel like this this would be a a good place to kind of kind of end it on. Um, you yep. know, you, you mentioned that the that there there were in select instances minor improvements from yep. the competitive effect in public schools, and in very you know it's a it's a you know a a, a very small group that this affects, but there is that. Um, what are, at, you know, studying education policy, I, I don't know if you have been just, just your bailiwick has been school choice and I want to uh, assess its effect or if it's been generally education policy, but if it's the latter, what are some things that, that you have seen across the country that have been implemented that yeah. have actually been proven yeah. on a large scale to make education and academic results better for the students? 
tutoring, summer school, professional mm -hmm. development for teachers. Um, listen, and here, this isn't a satisfactory answer to some folks, uh, but but Gospel of Matthew tells me that where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. You have to fund public schools. So mm -hmm. those competitive effects that we talked about in the voucher system, they're they're tiny. I, I'm not going to bore you with the math numbers, but they're tiny. They're about two-tenths of the size of just directly investing in those public schools in the first place. And that's a really important piece of this. So I, I, I appreciate you giving me the chance to, to follow up on that. Those competitive effects that do exist in those voucher systems are, uh, again, about 20% the size of just giving the schools more dollars to invest in the first place. So if improving public schools is our goal, which I think it should be, then simply giving them the resources to improve rather than uh, funding private schools for kids who are already there is actually much more effective on its own terms. And sometimes when I talk to folks, they're looking for me to say a really clever uh, a new new scheme to to improve outcomes. And we have a few data points that show, again, things like tutoring, things like summer school, things like professional development for teachers do work, but all those things cost money. And so there's no there's no substitute for just simply paying for the things that are important to you. Budgets are moral documents. So it tells what we decide to fund with our dollars, whether it's in education, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in food for families. That's another thing my governor just passed last year, a universal school meals bill giving food to kiddos. When that happens, not only do their test scores improve, not only do they not get bullied if they have to kind of wait in a line for, for food, but turns out things like local grocery prices go down because grocery doors have to kind of lower their prices to compete with schools uh, for mm. those free lunches. Like it benefits everybody. None of that's possible if you're going to be sending taxpayer dollars to private school tuition for kids who are already there. Um, I'm sorry. I've got one more follow-up. <laughs> uh, Finland, Finland is really, as I understand it, lauded for its public education system. And one of the things that Finland does uh, is they actually they ban private school. There's no private schools in Finland, if, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, you can't. It's all public education. Um, what are and and. and there are some people who say that because of that, then, you know, that that means that all the the, the hoity toity people have to go to public schools. And so they have more of an incentive to actually make sure the people with power in the community have the incentive to make sure that the, the public schools are better in Finland because their kids have to go there. Is there any merit to, to that? Have you looked into that at all? Well, I think, again, it, it, it does. It goes back to the resources involved there right if if everybody's children are going there uh then that means that the whole the the entire amount of resources spent on education is going to support those public schools and everybody's right. in this together that's just not the model that these voucher systems are planning here mm -hmm. and you know the, the results show all right Professor Cowan, thank you for your time. You've been very generous. Yep. Yes, you have been very Thanks, generous Chris. and uh, have really enjoyed it. And we'll be sharing with every educator I know in Alabama. Yep. Sounds good. Best of luck, guys. Appreciate yep. you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean now the the movement's dead. I mean, they're not. They're, it's they're going to be done because these are people that are like all facts and logic and and you know facts don't care about your feelings. So I right. mean, we're gonna we're Once not. Once they listen hear to this, about, yeah. like it's gonna end it's the gonna debate. End the debate. Yeah, we're not gonna hear about school <laughs> choice anymore in Alabama. Um, uh, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Um, that was that. I I apologize, Adam, but he was uh, he was he was a really good guest. He had a lot of good a lot of good information. I knew so it was gonna I be went, good. Yeah. I told people it was gonna be good. I went so. longer than I than I wanted to, but um, 
but I think we got some good stuff and I think it'll be, it'll be beneficial to, to, like you said, to send around. Um, we're, we're going to, uh, take a break really quick and we're going to talk about the latest UAW news and boss watch to wrap up the first half of the show. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senyard. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. 
Vaccineard Law, the name with proven results. As labor union members, we face our share of challenges in the workplace. But today, I want to talk about a different kind of challenge, the climate crisis. We've all seen the fury of Mother Nature, the storms that can turn lives upside down in an instant. That's why Hometown Action is launching our Climate Protection Project. We're heading out to 10 rural communities, listening to local folks, and taking action with them to protect communities impacted by climate disasters. And we need you, our union brothers and sisters, to join us. Together, we'll make a difference. Our strength on the job is undeniable, and now it's time to put that strength to work for the planet. Let's protect our communities, our families, and our future. Visit hometownaction.org today and sign up to volunteer for the Climate Protection Canvas. Union Talk Radio Show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host Adam Keller. If you missed any of the show, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube and watch the replay. We also release clips throughout the week. 844-899-TVLR is the phone number if you want to weigh in. Uh, We've got a lot of news to get to. So um, on this, uh, the UAW the UAW has continued to make waves in Alabama and across the country. And um, the BCA is uh, not happy about it. The Council of Bosses in Alabama. The Business Council of Alabama just is what the BCA stands for. Yeah. BCA, Business Council of Alabama, Council of Bosses in Alabama. They are not happy uh, with the the progress that Alabama's auto workers are making towards unionization and so they have announced an all out war on Alabama's auto workers um so i i don't know what we should get do you should we talk about should we talk about the Hyundai campaign in the main show or the B, uh, the the BCA article should we respond to that what do you think well, maybe we should talk about the campaign first, and then we okay. can get into the response, even if that's yeah on overtime if need be. Okay, yeah. So the 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 news, the latest news from Hyundai in Alabama, is, or from from the UAW in Alabama, is that workers at Hyundai hit thirty percent card signed. So thirty percent of the workers in fi- the five thousand uh, person factory in Montgomery uh, have now signed cards uh, saying that that they. They want to be a part of the United Auto Workers, um, so that's a big milestone. They held a forum a week, you know, a week and a half ago, something like that, and uh, so they're moving along very quickly with this campaign. Um, and the uh, they <laughs> they actually announced it immediately after the Business Council of Alabama announced their campaign. So that was a really good, um, you know, that that the timing worked really well for the auto workers there being able to announce. This victory immediately after the declaration of war by Alabama's business class. Um, and they announced that they had hit 30% with a great video. They, I mean, the UAW's communications team has, has been putting out great videos uh, 
for you know the last nine ten months now, and uh, I think this one is probably the best one uh, of the announcement videos at the uh, at these various plants where they've hit thirty percent. And so we're gonna go ahead and play this for you in full because it's really really good. Let's go ahead and play that for him, Adam. Welcome to Montgomery, Alabama, the birthplace of the civil rights movement, where Dr. King first preached. Montgomery, Alabama, the city where Rosa Parks sat down, and the city where thousands of Hyundai workers are ready to stand up. 20 years ago, Hyundai opened their first U.S. plant here in Montgomery. A foreign company got a quarter of a billion dollars in American taxpayer money. And we got promised good, safe jobs. 20 years later, we're still waiting. Hyundai's profits are through the roof. While we're some of the lowest paid auto workers in the country, we make the cars. But we can't afford the bottom. We put in a sweat, but we don't see the profits. Hyundai makes billions. While Alabama auto workers fall behind. They've always tried to divide us. But we're standing together. They told us to wait our turn. But we're done waiting. We're done waiting. We're done waiting. For years now, I have heard the word wait. This wait has almost always meant never. Hyundai workers can't wait. Our families can't wait. Montgomery can't wait. We're ready to stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And Lord, I will be with you. So there you go, folks. A very powerful message and directly combating some of the things that the business class and the political leaders in Alabama are saying, particularly one of the common talking points is that Alabama's auto workers are highly paid, highly paid. And so they uh, they said that they're some of the lowest paid auto workers in the country. And in the press release announcing this um, that, that they sent to me as well, some of them talked about their pay. One of the people um, involved in the campaign, Ronald Terry, said, I was a temp at Hyundai from 2014 to 2017. I made $11.03 an hour the entire time. That's three years working in an auto manufacturing facility that has OSHA fines against it of $50,000 for amputation and crush hazards at the same facility where they found child labor, at the same facility where uh, prison labor is being used. Now, free labor is being paid $11 an hour, and Governor Ivey is telling us that is highly paid. Highly paid. They uh, And Ronald Terry continued, they kept saying, just wait a little longer. You'll make it to full time. I finally did, but the pay is still mediocre. With the union, we can bring our pay and benefits up to a higher standard. That's how you motivate your workers. It's not just good for us. It's good for the product we produce. Uh, and that's obviously true. Another uh, Hyundai worker who does body shop control, Dwayne Naylor, 
said, my oldest son works at the plant over on General Assembly. I went through 14 years in General Assembly, and I know what it'll do to your body over there. I don't want the younger generation to go through what we did. Over the last 10 years, most of my raises have been just 12 or 13 cents an hour. The price of their cars, they go up every year, but my pay don't. If we don't get the union here, our pay will never keep up. They also talk about how um, they the retirement is not good. I'm getting close to retirement, and the company has literally broken me down. We need comp- compensation for that when we retire, not just a cake and a car discount for a car we can't afford to buy because we don't have any income. We need a real retirement. We need to win our union. They also talked about the injuries in the shop. And that's another thing that these people, Governor Ivey and the business class in Alabama are telling us. They're saying that these auto workers are not only highly paid, but these are high quality jobs. And so when you talk about a high quality job, you assume that that means the working conditions are good. Well, Kishel Liggins, a quality inspector at Hyundai, said, uh, no, no, Peggy Howard who works on F1 final in General Assembly. She said, when you're injured, management pushes you back on the line too soon. I had a surgery on my rotator cuff in September, and I had to go back to work the last of December. I didn't get the two weeks ramp up, and now I'm having pains all over again. I had cortisone injection three weeks ago, and I'm about to go back for another injection. If that doesn't work, the doctor told me he'll have to do the surgery over again. This is because she wasn't able to take the proper amount of rest. We need to make our job safer. We need the union. And then talking about, uh, you know, not only the safety, now talking about the time, the time that this company is taking from these people. Kishel Liggins, a quality inspector, said, here's when I knew I needed the union. My youngest son had a basketball game and I scheduled a half day of vacation time. Someone was supposed to come to the line to relieve me, but no one came. Finally, I clocked out, and I missed the first quarter of his game. They still wanted to write me up for job abandonment. I had to go in front of team relations, and I explained what happened, that I was legit in having this personal day, and my group leader stopped me and said, this job is more important than your family. Wow. At that moment, I just froze. That was sickening. I knew things at Hyundai had gone too far. Um, Luis Leon at Labor Notes has an article about this campaign as well. Uh, Luis Leon has been really writing kind of the definitive articles about the campaign as it progresses. Um, So I recommend, obviously, subscribe to Labor Notes if you haven't. If you want to learn about the labor movement, you want to learn about the latest news in the labor movement, and you want to learn how to be a better union member, subscribe to Labor Notes. Absolutely. Obviously. And read Luis Leon. Hyundai workers roll the union on in Alabama is the article title. Um, And they talked about how, you know, I I just told you, 12, 13 cent raises every year. Not a whole lot. Temps making $11 an hour. Once the UAW stand-up strike began uh, grabbing headlines last fall, she and she and her co-workers, this is talking about a worker, started talking in earnest about a union at Hyundai, especially after the union notched a historic victory at the Big Three. Then the company actually threw money at us, Liggins said. Hyundai promised to raise wages by 25% over four years. So then Liggins said, so all we're doing is talking about the union, and we got this little money and began wondering, what we could get if we actually tried to form a union. 
And right. so here we are today. Absolutely. Absolutely. You get a 25% raise because you're talking about a union? Imagine what you can get if you actually get a union. I mean, seriously. Think about it. So he, uh, so you know, Luis kind of reiterates or, or or talks about how the biggest issues are are retirement security, favoritism, high rates of in- in- injury, and punishing schedules. And um, <laughs> I want to give you the schedule. Workers complain that Hyundai's six day work weeks and last minute schedule changes break up their weekends, leaving them overworked and demoralized. Managers routinely flip their schedules with little notice uh, between days and nights or over holiday breaks. Gilbert Brooks usually takes vacation days ahead of Martin Luther King Day, which is a company paid holiday. On Tuesday, he reported back to work at his scheduled time, but because of the holiday, he didn't check the app and see that managers had called an early start. He didn't need to check if a worker's on vacation, the early startup notification isn't supposed to apply. Hyundai's manager still dinged him for being late, moving him to phase two of the disciplinary process. Wild, wild stuff. stuff. At Hyundai, workers are required to maintain 99% attendance. If a worker dips below that percentage because they're later absent, they're giving a verbal warning, talks about the progression. Hyundai has no sick days with only three personal days. Regardless of years at the company, workers are bound to end up in a disciplinary process. Could you imagine that? Working for one of the most profitable companies in the world, and you only have three days off a year. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But Governor Ivey has the gall to go around and tell these people, obviously these people know that it's not a high-paying, high-quality job, you know, she, uh, she thinks they're stupid, or but they're not that stupid, obviously. But she wants you and me to believe that because you and me don't have to work these schedules. We're not in those facilities, and so we don't know. And so maybe she's hoping that she can pull the wool over our eyes and hoping that we don't actually talk to these people and we don't actually read the reporting. And she wants you to believe these people are stuck up and asking for too much and they're greedy workers... And they don't deserve any more than they're getting. So, again, really great reporting from Luis. Always appreciate his work. And, um, you know, victory to the UAW and down with the BCA and the political class behind them. We'll talk some more about the BCA's uh, article and their campaign against the UAW in the second half of the show. It's going to start after we go off of the air at 11 a.m. Central Time. So if you want to hear that, uh, find us on Facebook and YouTube at The Valley Labor Report. Right now we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to get to Boss Watch. Boss Watch is a segment that we do every week uh, where we talk about uh, what bosses were up to in the last week because, uh, you know, we're, uh, the, 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 the evening news always has, you know, this segment like every time where they show mug shots about people who are arrested for shoplifting or trespassing or whatever. Um, and you never see bosses on the evening news with their mug shots because crimes by employers are not criminalized. But if we do as workers, the exact, literally the exact same thing, we would end up under the jail. And so this segment is intended to emphasize that. Starting in Florida, the U.S. Department of Labor has recovered $900,000, almost a million dollars in stolen wages and liquidated damages for 75 workers 
of a Florida grocery store enterprise after finding their employer wrongly exempted them from eligibility for overtime pay. <clears throat> the department's wage and hour division determined that La Primavera Store Incorporated, operating as La, uh, La Primavera Supermarket in Fort Pierce, Bradenton, and Sarasota, incorrectly categorized the affected workers as overtime exempt and did not pay them the required time and a half rate for 40 hours for over 40 hours in a work week. Investigators found the employees did not meet certain criteria for exemption. And in addition to wage violations, the, the division learned that La Primavera store employed two 15-year-old employees to work outside of legally allowable hours in violation of child fe uh, federal child labor regulations. Specifically, the employer employed the young workers past 7 p.m. during the school year and more than 18 hours during school weeks. The division assessed the employer with a $1,500 penalty to address the child labor violations. And it's worth noting that the Florida legislature wants to make that legal. The Florida legislature right now, a bill is moving through the legislature and is being passed by committees and houses in the legislature to allow children to work over 30 hours in a school week while they're in school. They want to make it legal to do that. Insane. <clears throat> in Georgia, a Silver Creek plumbing contractor could have prevented a 34-year-old employee's June 2023 fatal fall at a Rome worksite by following required safety procedures, a U.S. Department of Labor investigation found. Investigators with the department's Occupational Safety and Health Administration learned that a three-person crew uh, from K&D Plumbing Incorporated was replacing a sewer line at Armuchi high school when they encountered a blockage in a pipe to clear the blockage near the end of a 60 foot long trench one worker entered a manhole a short time later the worker fell about 20 feet where they succumbed to injuries as a result of the fall and subsequent exposure to a high atmospheric concentration of hydrogen sulfide gas the Rome Fire Department used a gas monitor to test the air inside the manhole and discovered the presence of hydrogen sulfide at 1,900 parts per million. The OSHA permissible exposure limit for hydrogen sulfide is 20 parts per million. It's about 100 times over the allowable limit. <clears throat> An environmental concentration of 100 parts per million is considered immediately dangerous to life or health. OSHA cited the employer for willfully failing to develop and implement a permit-required confined space entry program, including testing and ventilating the space before allowing employees to enter a manhole. The agency also cited K&D with six serious violations for not providing ladders or other safe means of egress from the six-foot deep trench and protections or controls for water accumulation inside the trench. In addition, the employer failed to have a competent person inspect the trench prior to workers entering and for not ensuring excavated soil and uninstalled piping were stored at least two feet from the trench edge, preventing them from rolling back inside the trench and striking workers. The agency proposed $180,000 in penalties. 
In North Carolina, the U.S. Department of Labor has recovered $168,000 in back wages for 51 workers at a Wilmington storm response contractor that misclassified them as independent contractors and failed to pay them for several months after work was completed. The department's wage and hour division found Utility Resource Services, LLC, which employs former utility workers and drivers to identify and report line and power issues in areas affected by hurricanes, violated minimum wage and overtime violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act when it failed to pay many of the affected workers for more than seven months. Just didn't pay them for the work that they had done for over half a year. Wild. Investigators also learned the employer had misclassified some employees as independent contractors and did not pay them the required time and a half rate after 40 in a work week and failed to maintain payroll records for its employees. During the investigation, the employer reported that they could not make payroll after the company holding the contract for these uh, for those services failed to pay them. But uh doesn't matter, you still got to pay you still got to pay your workers. So um yeah, really really wild stuff and they just get away with it, right? You can kill somebody, you can steal a million dollars from workers as long as you're an employer and not a regular working person. It's fine. All you got to do is pay the money back. Absolutely. Should be unacceptable. Uh, I have a few dishonorable mentions we wanted to make sure that we got to this week. A Norfolk Southern employee was killed in a train crash in Decatur, Alabama. The uh, National Transportation Safety Board said that they're going to be uh, doing a thorough investigation, but a full report could take up to two years to finish. U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division investigators found the ambulance service provider paid workers an incorrect overtime rate. The agency found that the employer failed to pay the correct overtime rate uh, after the Florida minimum wage rate increased from $10 to $11 per hour on September 30th, 2022. Instead, Excelsior Ambulance Service continued paying the lesser wage rate after the change became effective, leading to paying overtime at rates lower than required by law. The division recovered $33,000 in back wages and liquidated damages for 28 workers. Investigators with the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division found that an employer incorrectly determined that seven seasonal employees were exempt from overtime and paid them straight time instead of time and a half for hours over 40 in a work week. Additionally, the employer failed to properly compute compensatory time for 17 year-round employees. These actions violated the Fair Labor Standards Act, and they recovered $27,000. <clears throat> so there you go. That is, um, that's boss watch. And, um, I mean, it really, and there was is, more y'all. There yeah, was a there lot was more, more we could have pulled from. That was just a, a sampling of right. bad behavior by bosses over the past couple weeks. It really is. Um, you know, I mean, folks should be appalled at the things that employers are allowed to get away with, um, for, I mean, really what amounts to just a slap on the wrist, if if it can even be counted as that, um, because these penalties are just so, I mean, the penalties often just amount to uh, pay the workers what they owed, right? There's no uh, jail time. There's no, um, uh, you know, probationary period a lot of times. It's just, it's so amazing that, that employers are able to get away with this kind of stuff. And while, you know, Normal people 
have mugshots thrown all over the news if we steal toothpaste from a Walgreens. Yeah, and I was going to say that, you know, the EEOC, the Department of Labor, uh, these agencies that are, are doing these enforcement actions, they're underfunded and short manned. And also uh, you have politicians who want to make that worse, mm -hmm. right, because of their wealthy, <laughs> powerful donors who don't even like this little bit of accountability. Like right. even the slaps on the wrist is too much. Right. Uh, for some in capital who would prefer to have zero consequences at all, not even, you know, these minor bits of accountability that we can get. Uh, and so it's important that, you know, these agencies that are technically law enforcement agencies. Right? right. And, you know, last I checked, Republicans were supposed to be really big on law enforcement and funding law enforcement. Right. I guess, you know, unless it might actually help working people. Uh, and then it becomes right. a different debate, apparently. Yeah, absolutely. Adam, you have a few plugs for us as we round out the show? Yeah, let's see what we got going on. Um, as always, <clears throat> uh, Labor Notes, we mentioned them earlier in the great reporting they're doing. They're hosting a series of online trainings. I highly recommend you do Labor Notes trainings, right? Even if you can't do the next one, attend some Labor Notes trainings. Go to labornotes.org slash events. Um, Let's see what else we got going on. Alabama Rise is hosting a virtual action briefing the night before the legislative session starts. So that'll be February 5th from 6 o'clock to 7.15. You don't want to miss this legislative preview. You can go to uh, alarise.org to find out more and to register. And I will be on America's Workforce Radio this mm -hmm. week on Tuesday, um, probably talking some Alabama legislative session. Uh, some staff union news, some uh, what else? I, I have no idea what else I'll be talking about on America's Workforce, but check it out on Tuesday. And if you're a college student, a college professor, or have any connection to a college campus and you'd be interested in a pro-labor event on campus, check out Labor Spring 2024. It's an initiative out of Georgetown University. And if you're in Alabama and you're interested Definitely hit us up. You can just Google that, Labor Spring 2024, and find some information there. All right, folks, that's going to be it for us on the program. We are going to be playing uh, the Adams interview with Cornell West uh, at about 11.15 a.m. after we get into overtime. So find us on Facebook and YouTube if you want to hear that conversation. Uh, we're also going to be talking to Teamster Rick Smith of the Rick Smith Show, a nationally syndicated radio show and um, TV program on Free Speech TV, about <clears throat> Sean O'Brien's continuing um, footsie with Donald Trump and the most recent news that the Teamsters are going to try to donate $45,000, or Sean O'Brien is trying to get the Teamsters to donate $45,000 to the Republican National Committee. Um, really wild stuff. So we're going to talk about all that and more in overtime. Uh, find us online, Facebook, YouTube, The Valley Labor Report. Uh, if you're not able to do that, see you next week, folks. <laughs>